Hi there, welcome to another episode of the Digital Insurance Point Podcast. I'm Tom Reed. As always, I'm joined by Adam Mitchell, CEO of Mitchell & Whale, Jeff Roy, CEO of Excalibur Insurance, Steve Earle, CEO of Cheap Insurance, and today we have our special guest is Paul McDonald, Executive VP of Economical Insurance. Paul, how's it going? Not sure how special I am, but I'm definitely a guest, so uh, welcome. <laughs> yeah, good start. Good start. Hey, Paul, just so our uh, listeners uh, get a better sense of you, can you give us a quick uh, background on your career? Sure. Yeah. I, uh, after I graduated from law school, I, I uh, articled, got called to the bar, and then immediately thought better of it and went straight to the uh, <laughs> best industry there is, which is insurance. So I'm one of the few that specifically chose this industry. And I, I started off actually at Aon as a specialty lines broker. So I was at Aon for almost 10 years. Um, then I wanted to broaden my insurance experience and went to PwC, did some insurance consulting um, for a number of years, which was fantastic. Got to work with a lot of uh, good companies across Canada. And then I went insurance company side. And I went to uh, SGI out West, which was uh, really an interesting experience. Um, being a government owned entity, it was quite different um, than RSA where I worked for Rowan and uh, now most recently at Economical. So here I am. Awesome. All right. First, this must, I think you're the first uh, lawyer on our show. So we'll definitely not be making that a habit, but. uh, (laughs) And the first person admitted they wanted to get into insurance. They actually admitted it. So Paul, that's pretty good. Your honesty is incredible. Yeah, there aren't that many of us. Most of most of us are accidental tourists that loved it and stuck with it forever. But uh, but I, I did it deliberately and have loved it and stuck with it deliberately. So awesome, awesome. Right, let's, let's get to know you uh, a little bit more. So I'm gonna ask you a few questions um, uh, about sort of you and your interests. So first off, what is your favorite Canadian band of all time? <laughs> Uh, well, I went to uh, university in Kingston, and uh, yeah. my wife is from Kingston, so uh, I think the politically correct answer is tragically up. Paul is uh, fully, fully, completely. So yeah, there he's go. approved. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No more political correctness, though. That's, that's no, the no, I get. loved it. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Okay, which, uh, which beer did you, uh, did you open up there, Dave? Uh, Tall Ships, Garrison. From the East Coast, I went, as I said, I went to law school and I, and I did it out in Halifax. Love my time there and have a real soft spot for the East Coast and love the beer out there too. So happy to be participating. Well, little flashback there. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Uh, next one here. Fill in the blank. If I was elected Prime Minister of Canada, blank would be legal. <laughs> um, citizens being able to give traffic tickets. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I wanted to pull someone over and give them a ticket. But, uh, yeah. you just pull them over and beat them up. I have to think the better of it, so I, I wisely just ignore them and, and drive on. You know, in the broker world, I always wish there was something you could scan somebody's license plate just to make sure you never wrote them if they ever called. Yeah, exactly. Well, I can tell you when I was out west because uh, you know SGI did business across Canada, but of course we had a monopoly on auto in uh, in Saskatchewan, and so of course every time you're driving around Saskatchewan, anyone that you drive behind, if they're driving like hell, you you know you're automatically insuring them, so it's not a very good feeling. <laughs> so, Paul, who uh, you've you've been in a few different areas of the industry, so you've got quite a broad network, I'm sure. Who do you most admire in the Canadian PNC industry? Hmm. Is that is that a company or a person that you're asking about? Either, either. Well, you know, it's it's interesting that there's there's a lot of good companies. I, I tend to admire the Canadian domiciled ones uh, the most because uh, you know we're we're smaller players by comparison to those globals. But there's some uh, some really good homegrown ones. Obviously, I'm a huge fan of Echo. I think we've done some incred- incredible things. Had a great time at SGI, as I mentioned. CAA, I'm I'm uh, a good fan of because. Uh, you know, they're an interesting, well-rounded uh, little organization um, that uh, has done well for Canadians. And then, of course, Intact, you can't but help admire, um, you know, the, the fact that they're a global player or soon to be a, a very global player. So lots of good, good uh, homegrown talent. Um, we're hoping to be, you know, another great Canadian success story into the future. Awesome. So my final uh, question, the speed round here is, and this is going to stretch your... Uh your linguistic abilities. Do you know how to say seal in French? 
<laughs> you know, I uh, the only reason I know that is because I have an 11-year-old son, and uh, he came home last week and was uh, and was telling me it was a it, it was seal uh, in French. And so after I looked it up, I guess I I took him out of timeout and, and said, "Don't repeat it again." <laughs> Okay, so you do know how to say seal in French. You're just not going to say it on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, you can. Is that what you're going for? All right, you're oh, smarter than seal, I. Like. The seal you, you bomb. Can, you can dub it. In. You can dub it in later, Tom. My yeah, we'll, we'll we'll dub in the bleep. Uh, okay, so let's get into something a little more meaty here. Echo obviously uh, has been going through the mutualization process. Uh, so can you give us a um, an update on how that's going um, and has the so part B of that question, has the demutualization effort had any negative effect on your brokers? Uh, that's a weighted question. So the, the first part, um, you know, I joined Echo three years ago. And at that point, I think they'd been going six or seven years at that time. So for those folks, it's probably felt like it's been forever. Uh, for me, it's been accelerating pretty rapidly. And, and uh, so our chair of the board, John Bauer, just recently uh, sent out a, a statement indicating that we're we're keen to move forward and we're looking to have the third and final vote uh, sometime in Q2 of next year if possible. And then uh, ideally, uh, again, depending on the outcome of the vote and OSFI's timeline, we're targeting the fall of next year. So uh, for the actual IPO. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, we're, we're now, you know, getting down to within a year, um, all, if all things go as planned. Uh, and I think it's it's a great thing for us to be going as a Canadian entity. As I mentioned earlier, you know, Intact's really the only Canadian um, public company in the PNC space, and and, and we want to be the other one. Uh, we want to give them a run for the money. I think it's good for brokers to have alternatives. I think it's good for brokers to have strong Canadian companies uh, with a real focus and expertise and stability in Canada. And I think uh, you know, becoming public gives us access. Uh, to certain things that allow us to keep getting bigger and, and, and stronger and continue to be a support for the brokers. So I'm, I'm hopeful that it's a net positive for, for brokers in Canada. Great. Is there any truth to the rumor that every share of Echo in the fall of 2021 will come with a free COVID vaccination? You don't have to answer that question. I think we're hoping every share of every company next year comes with a free COVID vaccination, to be honest. Yeah, for okay. sure. Right. Uh, yeah, Echo was one of the first companies to implement a full guide wire system. And I think the term used was, it was kind of your version of a moonshot. I think a really wise person at Echo said that. And uh, basically, you, know, you were a big part of the transition. So uh, how, did, how did you come, a, 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 come along with the decision to implement Guidewire? And what challenges did you hit along the way? And uh, what have you learned from the experience of going through it? Yeah, I mean, a huge amount. And uh, th this is one of those things like, you know, I'm aging myself a little bit, but I keep saying that uh, that Guidewire is kind of like, you know, the VHS Betamax um, war that happened a, a number of years ago. There are lots of vendors that can provide it. Guidewire, I think, just did the better job of, of getting out first and connecting with a lot of other companies and providers. And that gives benefits to anyone who jumps on uh, as part of that network. So, I think that's why the organization selected Guidewire. We went with policy and billing. We're working on claims now. But I think really the, the moonshot component was the key differentiator. It's not just a backend system that we wanted to put in. We really wanted to do it differently. And we met with our brokers. You know, as a former broker myself, it used to drive me crazy when companies came to me and said, oh, look, we, we've created a portal. And, and I was like, great. <laughs> you know, that, that's yet another system I have to re-enter information into. And so we listened to our brokers and the broker said, don't do that. Don't create yet another broker. Make it easier for us. Um, you know, connect to us through APIs. And in that way, help us get more efficient as well. And that's what we did. It was a bit of a, a you know, a, a challenge in terms of nobody had done it before that way. And certainly not in Canada. And so we had to learn as we went. And I got to say that we could not have done it without the broker's support. I mean, they helped us design it. They helped advise us. They helped, um, you know, point out the problems and they stuck with us through it. And uh, as much as a bit, much as it was a bit painful to go through, I would say by comparison to some other um, executions of it, it actually went relatively smoothly. And, and I'm glad that the, the majority of that is now behind us. And so now we're transacting and it's working quite efficiently. That's nice. 
the the Vine system and and I guess the Guidewire whole backend really lets you go in for rate changes in a, in a much quicker way than than ever before. And and in 2020, you guys had 10 times the rate changes than you did the previous year. What's what's your thoughts or comments on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we probably, well, I joined in the beginning of 2018, and um, at that time we were doing less than a dozen rate changes across Canada. When you compare that to the rest of our competition, we were pretty far behind. And in part it was because we were focused so much on implementing it, we had to take a pause. But it has given us that ability to move much faster. And uh, and, and we are, you know, not quite 10 times, but, but all, uh, you know, almost that in terms of the number of changes. And... Um, you know, it's a necessity. We, 19 was a hard market like crazy. We almost forget that now because 20 was the pandemic. And so all of these changes are occurring so rapidly. We've got reforms coming through in multiple jurisdictions and regulators are allowing different kinds of pricing structures. So we got to respond really quickly to that. Um, I know that seems quite painful to all of us in Canada, but when you look at other jurisdictions like the UK, for example, they do daily rating. So conceptually, it's not that difficult or unheard of. It's just, uh, you know, the structure in Canada makes it kind of tough. And so it, where it would take us three months before to do a rate change, now it takes less than two weeks. That's probably still not fast enough. Um, and we got to respond faster. And that allows us to respond to broker demands faster. On the flip side of that, though, it does put a little more pressure on brokers to keep up with what's happening because, you know, the, the brokers are going to be faced with these a multitude of rate changes from every single company. So this, yeah. again, I think this is why it... it forces all of us to move to a much more automated mechanism in the industry. Otherwise we just collectively won't be able to keep up. Sort of Paul, like APIs. I, I, yeah. Absolutely. But Paul, I, th I think that brokers, we can handle rate changes at renewal. I think the, the friction is really caused when rate changes are pumped through and they're implied on endorsements. It, it, it really creates chaos when you have customers that call uh, to decrease coverage or make a change that should result in a premium decrease midterm and rate change, it, it, the endorsement is processed, but now the new rates are applied midterm. Um, and the premium actually goes up. We've seen many, many instances of this. So you can get rate faster, but if you're doing it on endorsement as well, uh, rather than at renewal, it's a big challenge for brokers. How do you explain, you know, I've removed collision, I've increased my deductible and my, and my rate's gone up midterm. Yeah, I think it, that's more of a function of the, the systems and how they're designed. And the, really the systems are designed to try and keep currency. And so as long as you don't touch the system, it'll maintain whatever rate you most recently put through. But as soon as you have a transaction, it may seek to apply the most recent rate. And so that is a bit of a design challenge, I think, for all of us collectively. As, as all of us, as the entire industry moves to much more modern systems, they're much more technically complex, and we're going to have more and more of these kinds of challenges. I mean, I think we saw a little bit of that throughout the pandemic, even with relief measures. And you'll see, you know, we took a bit of a heat as an industry for having such a wide variety of relief measures. We didn't get together like the banks didn't come up with a consistent approach. Um, and, and part of the reality for that is we're all in different systems. And so for those of us on very old systems with manual processes, they could process rebates right away. For those of us on modern systems like we were, you know, we program changes months ahead. And, and you know, part of the guarantee to brokers is we give you those um, renewals more than 60 days in advance. But the problem with that is what happens if you want to process a change within that 60 day period? So it is something that we're aware of. We're going to have to keep working at it, I think, collectively um, and, and figure out yeah, it's a, a better it's way of a, it's a guide, it to customers. It, it's a guide wire issue because we see it out of other guide wire companies yeah. Yeah. too. It just, the, the number of midterm, the amount of midterm remarketing we need to do now as brokers because an endorsement has resulted in something catastrophic to that over the, the original price that the insured agreed to is it's more steps and extra friction. I just, it is, no it's a challenge, but of course, yeah. of course it's a challenge when prices are increasing and markets hardening. It's, yeah. it's not such a challenge when it's going the other way. So in soft market conditions, you get the customer gets a net benefit right away. 
And so obviously brokers won't have to do remarketing at that point. So, you know, it, it's the ups and downs are, are uh, magnified by these systems. Good point. Yeah, magnified by COVID and a hard market on top of that. So oh, it's, yeah. uh, it's just been a layer upon layer upon layer. You know, I know one of the challenges when you had the system when you came out with buying is that you couldn't really change it until you fully deployed it. So you couldn't adjust the rating for a period of time, right? So you had to take a little more rate in 2019 to be able to play kind of catch up, right? Oh, that was tough. That was like, you're, you know, you're mid-flight. And you know when you land, there's going to be a whole bunch of things you need to change, but you can't help it. You still got to keep flying that thing until it comes time to land. So the, the biggest challenge for us particularly was we timed it, uh, not, not obviously deliberately, but when we landed with uh, deployment, it was right at the beginning of that hard market, and we were really far behind. So we had to play rapid catch-up, which was unfortunate. But, um, but as I said, the brokers really stuck with us, and, and we explained it and, and managed to get it through. So uh, I couldn't be more uh, grateful for that support. Awesome. Well, let's let's keep talking about uh, technology sure. and and brokers. Uh, I mean, obviously, Echo spent you know a lot of money on uh, Guidewire, and you've also, as a related thing, you've spent a fair amount of money developing APIs for the broker channel. Can you tell us why you did that and and why you did it, what you're trying to achieve, and and is it working? Yeah, and again, I think I think part of it stemmed from um, from the initial sort of innovation around Sonnet, which was around can we automate underwriting? Uh, can we make the process so quick and efficient that you can bind essentially immediately with that initial transaction? And it was a bit of a test subject. Um, and the and and the real innovation in my mind was then saying how do we bring that capability to the broker channel? How do we make the broker experience? as efficient and based upon that policy and billing system as i mentioned we not only automated the underwriting but we said but we made those connections and so uh, it it forced us to to have those discussions with all of the bms vendors all the major ones the rate quoting vendors and that was a lot of work and expensive work because it hadn't been done before um, and and i think it really the proof's in the pudding because uh, during COVID, in particular when everyone's working from home and brokers had to you know, do unprecedented levels of extra work and remarketing. Here was an opportunity for brokers to access our systems from their house if they needed to, even when their own systems were down. And it allowed brokers to transact 24 seven if necessary, and allowed brokers in many cases to transact, bind you know, almost immediately within that five minute transaction. So I think we really led the way in terms of improving it. We, we recognized early on that there's a ton of frictional cost in the insurance world. And I don't know why we're all competing on who could spend the most on that extra cost when reality is let's all compete on, on providing advice and support for customers and get rid of all that frictional cost. I'm a big proponent of that. You know, I look at the banks who have gotten together and said, let's, let's do bank machines together. Let's do uh, online banking. Let's do credit card processing. I think too often we rely on these anti-competitive rules in insurance to prevent us from actually doing what's best for the for the industry i agree completely technology especially infrastructure technology connectivity and so on you know if, if that's treated as a competitive advantage it actually is in my mind harmful to the broker channel you can't you can't you can't be connected differently you have to be connected consistently and some of the things that we can do in payments and banking and you know finance and you know others other financial services are so much easier than in the insurance business because they've gotten over that hurdle. They've said, you know, yeah. infrastructure is common, right? We, we'll compete in our products, our knowledge, our experience, our people, you know, whatever. But at the end of the day, the ability to move, you know, a byte from here to there is not a competitive thing. In fact, it works better for everybody. It's cheaper if we do it the same way. Yeah, I mean, added to that, of course, is that we're a little different because we've got 10 regulatory environments as opposed to banking that has one. And so we do have a, a, an extra few hurdles as an industry. We also have 100, over 100 PNC companies compared to the, you know, four or five banks. So, so I think we're moving in that direction, but I, I, I absolutely agree. We need to get rid of it because it's not just brokers. It's the insurance companies. It's the vendors. It's the Customers, everyone's paying for that frictional cost and, and we don't want to be paying for it. 
I still, I still remember vividly when you did the road show and you rented a place in Waterloo. I can't remember the bar's name or the location. It wasn't a bar, but it was a location. And uh, I saw you did a demonstration of Vine and I saw the first STP, which stands for, for me, straight through processing on new business. And my eyes lit up like that's what I've been dreaming of. No portals, no double entry. That was amazing how easy and simple it was and how well it worked out of the box. So uh, I, I believe to my knowledge, you're one of the first companies to do that. Uh, you're continually building out APIs and investing in the technology. What other stuff are you building out? Are you doing some commercial stuff in 21, 22? Is it getting some love? You mentioned uh, about, is it the claim system you're doing some work on it? Where's kind of your investment in terms of API building and what other, any other technologies you're looking at investing in on top of that? Yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're going to continuously invest in technology, not just in the BAU, you know, upkeeping the existing technology, because we all know you can't just, you can't just put one version and leave it forever. So we're upgrading the guidewire versions, we're putting it to the cloud. Um, we are uh, investing in claims was the next, uh, you know, the leg of the stool for the, the back end policy billing claim systems. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Fabi and his team in commercial um, are really focusing on trying to put some investments in on the commercial side, particularly the small commercial side at the beginning. The reality is we're going to continue innovating and investing. Uh, it is rather expensive and, and can be quite concerning for the be the first one out. But I do think the more people that get into this, the more it'll benefit all of us collectively. I do think COVID um, has had the benefit or has the benefit of actually accelerating consumer acceptance of digital transactions on the on the insurance side. You know, we all bought everything, including banking online. But for some reason, Canada was pretty far behind that in, in the, the insurance space. Now we're all forced to work from home and everyone's thinking about it. So it's it's really accelerating that need. And the, the more that we can keep investing in the digital experience for brokers and customers, uh, with an eye of improving the experience and also reducing costs. Now, if you can get, if you can keep those two things in focus, uh, we have a good chance of, of catching up with the banking industry. Yeah, I totally agree. Hey, loyal listeners, when you hear me say CAS certified, that means that we use them in our agency. Are you a local insurance agent looking to take your business to the next level? Write more business and see your agency succeed with NBS aka nationwide brokerage solutions but like in today's world we use these initials like it's cool because it is and it's hip at nationwide brokerage solutions they offer the challenges local agents face in the constantly changing market that's why they offer a wide array of personal and commercial markets and policy options to help you meet the needs of your customers no matter how unique they may be with a team of experienced and dedicated professionals that provide you with the support and the guidance you need to see your agency succeed. Nationwide Brokerage Solutions is here to support you every step of the way. Don't you survive in the competitive insurance industry? Thrive with Nationwide Brokerage Solutions today. Get started today and learn more at mbsbrokerage.com. That's where you learn more, mbsbrokerage.com. Cast certified. Can I, can I jump in on exactly that line on investing in technology? Um, for, for those who didn't see it, uh, Rowan was on the CEO panel for the IBO um, convention and, and interviewed with Colin. He, he brought up, and I'll, I'll read the quote, but he was asking, he was asked about, will brokers be left behind if they're not investing in technology? And his line was that he didn't want to be an alarmist, but on this one, I think it is almost too late for someone that have not stepped up. What's, what's Paul's take on that? You know, I, I think the entire, um, you know, financial institution industry is, is going to be left behind if they don't invest in technology. That is the way that we're going to be interacting um, uh, with customers, but also that's the way we're going to be managing our data, analyzing the data, pricing our products, you know, this is the next, we had the industrial revolution and this is the technology revolution and, and it's impacting everything. Who would have thought that, uh, you know, one of the biggest companies um, years ago, we would have picked a, a bookseller to become the world's, one of the world's biggest companies. And now Amazon, you know, is dominating and they've done it through technology and understanding um, their business 
and expanding their business. And look at the other big companies. They're all, all the biggest ones are all tech plays. Um, we don't have a choice. Uh, we're going to get left behind if we, if we don't. So we're trying to help accelerate that in, in the marketplace and, uh, and work with our brokers to help brokers uh, move that. But, but yeah, I, I'm with Rowan on, on the fact that if, if people are deliberately uh, digging their heels in and saying we don't need to invest in technology, I, I think they're going to suffer the consequences. And you mean specific to brokers? I mean everyone, absolutely everyone. So, you know, and, that, and so brokers, insurance companies, vendors that supply our, our uh, uh, you know, you think about traditional vendors even that repair houses and, and, and vehicles they're having to invest heavily in technology to keep up and to, uh, to keep the, the rates down and the work accurate. So we're all having to do that. Um, the, tre- the challenge with technology is really scale. It costs a lot of money and if you're yeah. small, you're small, you don't have the same yeah. resources to make the giant investments. And so if you have a bunch of very small brokers, uh, mom and pop brokers, which have been the lifeblood of the industry for uh, you know, hundreds of years, how, how are this very small brokers or the very small uh, mutuals uh, insurance companies that are throughout Canada, uh, the challenge is how, without partnership, how on earth are they going to be able to afford to invest in the necessary technology? Either that or they have to wait it out until technology becomes so inexpensive and accessible that then they can gain it. Either that or their broker management system could actually step up and provide them with what they need insofar as the technological event, but I'm not going to go there. Uh, you can't, we, I mean, we can't have an echo guy on without talking a little bit about Sonnet. Yeah. So a lot of brokers accuse economical of competing against them with Sonnet. So are you competing against us with Sonnet? And I love the Sonnet commercials. You know, the guy who's like, honey, what are you doing? I'm, I'm measuring off to the fire hydrant. You know, it's all about insurance without questions. So my part B to the, to the Sonnet question is, when are you going to not ask the questions of insurance professionals like brokers if you won't ask the questions of the public? I yeah, think what so, you're trying so, to say, Steve, is the questions yeah. are a lot less for a Sonnet client than a broker client. Is that what you're trying to yeah. say? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So let, let me, let me address those in turn. And so, you know, I, I'm not sure I would agree fully with your comment that a lot of workers are accusing us of competing. We certainly hear um, concerns initially at uh, there, there were concerns and, and it wasn't so accusatory so much as tell me, tell me how, and, and why would you be doing this? And I think most brokers completely understood that, um, you know, this is a distribution uh, industry and many competitors are hedging bets on, direct, intermediate, and broker-owned uh, distribution. Um, so we felt, we, you know, we, we felt we were trying to fall behind, and we didn't like that direct companies, some of our direct competitor companies, were taking uh, pieces of business out of the marketplace. These were individuals who, who didn't value the advice the way they probably should. They didn't want to pay for the advice that a broker can offer. Um, they wanted a digital-only experience. And so we wanted to be able to provide uh, that option for them. I do think it's a different subset of, of, uh, of customers. The bigger question is, does that subset converge in the future as everyone becomes more familiar? But certainly at the initial instance, it was quite a different customer, a very vanilla type risk, um, you know, much more digitally savvy. Uh, they were marketing very much to millennials, urban millennials. And, uh, and you can imagine what, what kind of mix of business we got as a result of that marketing. Um, so it was very distinct and quite different from the broker channel. It didn't have the same level of uh, limits available, certainly at the time didn't, you know, all the extra things that brokers need to provide advice on, that that was not something you could buy in the Sonnet channel. So from that perspective, we were comfortable from having a, a different target. Um, in terms of over time, uh, there's lots of advantages that I think we're bringing from that because it was, you know, startup from dollar one. And so it was an opportunity for us to learn um, and then deploy that to the benefit of the brokers. So as I mentioned earlier, one of the big learnings was automated underwriting. We have deployed that and that's what's, that's the root of Vine and what's enabled us to provide that service to brokers on the Vine side. Uh, the other was adding the third-party data set. So what allowed us to ask fewer questions on Sonnet 
is actually allowing us to ask fewer, fewer questions on the Vine side as well. Um, and over time, uh, we could we continue to supplement that so that, um, you know, one of the things we did is we pre-filled the data for brokers um, with third-party data. And that, in theory, makes it easier for brokers to transact. Now, we have, we have allowed brokers to override that value because we think you have the greatest expertise. So if a third-party provider provides, provides a certain amount of information, you guys usually have better information and we'll take that. On the Sonnet side, we don't have that. We have to 100% rely on the validity of third-party data. In many cases, it's out of date. So on a portfolio basis, um, you know, it, it may be accurate, but on an individual basis, we may, we're taking quite a bit more risk in some cases on that side. So it continues to be an evolving issue. Uh, some of the marketing, uh, some of the investments we've made in fraud analytics, for example, we've brought through on the Vine side. And so we'll continue to use it as a bit of an innovation mechanism and give, give the stuff that works uh, to, to the broker side. And then lastly, um, the other big piece is, can we provide some of that digital capability to our brokers? And that's part of the roadmap is that how can we enable brokers to provide a digital experience to their customers and so the broker channel can compete with the direct channel in Canada. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's, that's the most important piece of it. I think that we really do want those customers and I think that those customers want to deal with us. We just can't give them, deliver to them that, that experience that they're looking for. But I think that we're getting there. So I think that's good. Like we're getting the benefits of the learning. Just the, the biggest problem we yeah. run into in the digital world and everybody here in the call is very digitally savvy. But one of the challenges we have is just the, the price gap with what we're, you know, we run into a lot of these digital clients where it's not five or 8%. We get into 15 to 25%. You know, I'm not sure what it's supposed to be, but do you see a, a more than 10 point expense difference between Sonnet and the broker? Definitely the direct channel uh, as a channel, not, not necessarily the, spot, the Sonnet Echo specific information, but just as a channel, direct channels tend to have a lower expense ratio. Um, but then they tend to also charge a tiny bit less. So their loss ratio ends up being very similar between the two channels. Uh, I don't think I would say that all of that, all of that pricing difference was deliberate. Uh, certainly, we've been through a period of rapid uh, price increases on the Sonnet side, and it was really inadequate. And part of what what I've been helping the team with is is get us uh, as rapidly as possible to adequacy. And of course, you can never go as fast as you want because the regulators will will put caps on it. But um, but certainly, I think you will see over time it'll get much much closer. We've seen that it. gap uh, close really quickly in yeah. in our jurisdiction between so it was huge to begin with and it has come quite close now Good. yeah and part of, i mean i'll give you one example part of it's that third-party data provision that i mentioned earlier and so if you have a third-party piece of data that says your house is valued at four hundred thousand, and then you know we write it at that we price it at that and then we realize it's actually seven hundred thousand because a year ago they did massive rentals and nobody nobody knew about it this is something a broker would know but we only know about it after the fact and so if you're competing against the quote you'll you'll look at it that's something we need to correct. That is not yeah. intentional and we don't not want to keep with that, right? No, so is the, when you, when you talk about the, the cost base being lower, is, does that take into account the, the marketing side and the sort of the whole operating of call center or people to both service and, and, and run TV ads on it as well? It does. Oh. Yeah. And again, right. and again, I'm talking, I'm talking industry, uh, not Sonnet specific. So if you look at industry, uh, directs the, the model is built around having a, an expense ratio advantage um, but then that's made up for a little bit as you say with marketing costs and then also they you know so if you have a five point expense ratio advantage you can afford to 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 have rates five points cheaper as an example your, your loss ratio ends up being the same Applied announced they're going to have a quote buying and issue solution uh, uh, starting in January of next year in Quebec. And uh, I've seen it actually economical. I think if I look back, you're one of the first people ever to have that prior, prior to you being at the company. But there is a pilot project probably in 2014 or 2015 where that happened. It, with your experience in Sonnet, would you be interested in providing a quote buying and issue solution where a broker had no interaction similar to Sonnet? Is that something that would be a, an option in 2020? 21 or yeah, is that further down the horizon? Yeah. We've explored it. And you know, what's really interesting is we've, some of the learning from this is actually um, where we've had some digital brokers 
um, that that connected up through Vine. We actually had some pretty poor loss experience because it was a straight through, and so then we were relying on the customer to be honest or accurate. Yeah. And um, so it really shows the value of the broker knowing their customer and being that frontline underwriter to that business. So we encourage, we will encourage it, but. Yeah, as we've learned through the Sonnet side, you, the fraud analytics have to be that much greater. The controls have to be that much greater. The third-party validation has to be that much greater. It's it's just a different world. Well, yeah, and, you, and, and that's something that you, we, we talked. I met with you and Roger last summer. It was a great conversation, uh, and Fabi was there too. But you mentioned about how you have analytics to detect if somebody's taking a policy, and you, you found somebody, I won't say what island, but from a certain island was buying a policy, right? And you were able yeah. to detect that and be able to tell that it was a fraudulent person trying to set it up because you could tell by the IP address and you had the analytics, right? This is not easy. Um, digital, no. digital, digital direct is not easy. Um, you need a lot more because people are more likely to lie to a machine than they are to lie to a person. Yeah. So uh, economical doesn't currently have any, any UBI or telematics solutions. Where's, where are the short-term plans going with that one? Oh, I'd love to have it uh, as fast as I can get in and I'd love to, but you know, I think the echo made the decision a number of years ago uh, not to invest at that time. Since then, there are a number of things that have happened that have accelerated. I think the interest in it one, as I mentioned earlier, more and more consumers are willing to do things online Two, uh, you know, a year ago, consumers would, would be pretty angry. A lot of them are angry. If you say, we're going to follow you and track your driving behavior and your mileage. Now they're all clamoring for it saying my car's parked in the driveway. I should be getting a big discount. So do you have a product? And three, the regulators now are saying we need to, you know, Alberta just uh, went forward with it. Ontario is looking to support it. A lot of the regulators are saying we will support more advanced uh, telematics or UBI programs. And so I think the time is right for it. This is one of those ones where I think if you're last in the game, you're going to get anti-selected. And so we are looking at it and um, very, you know, very interested in exploring how that might work. But again, it's another level of technological investment. And as we talked about earlier, we got a stack up of things we got to do. We're still working on claims and then commercial and, but UBI is on the radar. So what if the broker was the conduit and, and was the caretaker of past history of UBI? From a pure data perspective, we already entrust our brokers through contracts with validating the information you provide us around uh, around the customer. So whether that's whether that's on their underwriting factors or whether that's on their driving behavior, isn't it kind of the same thing? So on the flip side, will you let me take your UBI data? with my customer on their journey to another insurer. The UBI data ends at when you go from insurer to insurer, it has to be reestablished. And that's one of the problems with it. It's probably because it's yet another one of these areas where people are trying to get competitive advantage, right? Yeah. Um, if we had a normalization of UBA data, UBI data, what are the factors that we track? The way we do on standardized application forms, then we'd probably have a contractual way of sharing that data. But given that every insurer is collecting slightly different um, information about driving behavior and finding mm -hmm. it differently, you know, that's probably what, what they want to uh, maintain is their own IP. But I guess it depends. Do, do you see regulators converging upon an agreed set of characteristics for us to rate UBI on? Yeah. I think yeah, so. I, th would, I think it's. Yeah. I think it's coming. Well, I think, it would. Well, yeah. I think like the, the US is going. The US is going that way of some place about putting the data in the cloud and moving your data around. But there's a yeah. lot more solutions in the US, right, than Canada right now. Yeah. So, we and this is kind of reflecting back on the comment that uh, we talked about Rowan making earlier. Um, what do you what do you, what do you see for the future of the broker channel, and what what do you think a broker needs to do now to be know, in thrive mode in, in 2025. Customers are always going to need advice. Even ones who want to do everything digitally and who say, don't bother me, they're going to have life, um, life events that require advice. And so really the question for me is how competitive can the broker channel be if it had the similar levels of digital interaction, then what would a customer choose and why? Um, and so I think the broker of the future will have to be digitally enabled to service the customers the way that customers want to be serviced. 
but be available for them for the advice giving um, because it's a complex world and complex product. Um, and as much as we try and simplify it, you know, customers inherently don't understand nor care to understand the product until after the fact. So much, much as, um, much as you know, you, you get a piece of software and you have to read all this stuff to accept, nobody reads it. You just scroll down to the bottom, press accept. And then we act surprised after the fact when we you know we've agreed to something. That's what insurance uh, customers do, except the consequences are so severe. If, and you look at what's happening with pandemic, you know, business interruption, the, the wordings really do matter. And what you've signed up for really does matter. And therefore, how do you automate that and yet still provide advice to a customer around pandemic cover, uh, you know, quake cover, flood cover, um, automated, you know, self-driving vehicles, things are getting more and more complex and therefore we, more advice is required. So I think the future is going to be bigger brokers, fewer of them, more specialized. And then for the PI, the personal insurance kind of stuff, far more automated and digitized. And just like the, just like the travel agents, I think for the most part, the small mom and pops will struggle. I want to know what the definition, the definition of small mom and pop is. It's not about, so there's a certain level of dollars because, so you can buy this stuff. Yeah. Paul Paul talked about that earlier, but to me at that point, it's, and and Paul hit it right in the head. It's, can you serve your customer the way they want to be served? And to me, that talks about, you know, your channels of communication with your customer and you don't have to be a hundred million dollar broker to be able to have multiple channels. I think that a mom and pop shop, like Tom said, who's digitally savvy and can do the thing, as long as they have market support and the ability to provide choice, I think it's actually easier in a lot of circumstances for smaller organizations to get on board with, with really astute small vendors to be able to offer these super cool customer experience things that really large organizations have a tough time consuming and moving and integrating into workflows. I mean, being nimble and being able to pivot and try different things and fail fast uh, really counts for something insofar as the growth and the ability to deliver that experience versus a giant brokerage that just can't, it takes a long time. Yeah. And you're talking extremes, but I I do think that, um, I do think you need a certain uh, ability to generate enough cash that you're willing to reinvest into your brokerage to, to take advantage of those digital and technological capabilities. And if you're too small to be able to spit out that cash, uh, you're going to struggle. Like on the insurance company side, for example, we're a $3 billion company, almost a $3 billion company. And, and my, my fear is we're still a little too small. We need to get bigger. We need to grow, grow, grow to take advantage of the leverage uh, opportunity available to us from deploying that capital in, in technology. So, and, and as I said before, the a- absent partnerships and partnerships is probably the way to go, even for a company our size, the future for small brokers, for, for larger insurance companies, we got to partner more and more because it, it's increasingly expensive to try and develop own grown solutions. Yeah. Um, you know, that's all gone by the wayside. Everyone's trying to buy commercially available stuff that integrates. That's the key. The more we can purchase that, the more people do, the more it becomes financially viable for smaller companies to do so. And then it'll keep scaling down. As I said before, it's the question is a matter of timing. How long can the small broker survive without those investments, hoping to take advantage of that scale benefit that the industry has? So it's a bit of a, yeah, yeah. A, bit of a race against time, I think. You know, a lot of brokers haven't been reinvesting their money. Like everybody in the call here has been reinvesting their profits back in to continue to learn and get better, right? But not everybody's been doing that. And some people are waiting around. Well, eventually everybody will have it. Well, by the time everybody has it, it could be too late. And that's, uh, you got to be very nimble and be able to turn on a dime. You know, that's one of the interesting things from my time at consulting. I can tell you that every single insurance company and brokerage that I met with, their strategy was fast follower. Yeah. <laughs> Who are we following, right? <laughs> right off the end of the cliff, right? Yeah, I right. know. We were 10 years behind the banks and, and we're behind the UK and the US. Like, who, the <laughs> who are we following? The blind leading the blind. What's uh, the next year? What do you, is there any big things on your horizon in the next 12 months, Paul? Anything that, uh, 
any any other moonshots or anything <laughs> massive that uh, you know you guys are working on? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, you know the Canada's first ever mutual um, IPO, so we're gonna we're gonna try that one on for size. That's a pretty. Big... <laughs> it's a bit of a moonshot. It, it it is, you know, and I'm and I'm super excited. I mean, this is not easy stuff, and it's not an easy environment. Uh, our board is very focused on innovation. Our executive team is very focused on innovation. So we're we're going to continue looking at the future to see how we can leapfrog. Incremental um, improvements are not going to get anyone there. They're, you know, we have to take some moonshot risks if we want to compete with other financial institutions. So we're going to do that. Uh, IPO is one mechanism that we're going to go through to enable us to, you know, to to take some bigger risks in the future. But it's a it's an exciting way to go for us. I'm just putting the gas down on uh, on business generation. I think with the help of our brokers, we've gotten our pricing close enough that we think let's do it. You guys need a, a steady provider that can that can provide you with you know, low touch, low friction uh, workflows. We've got that, you know, there will always be exceptions, but other than that, let's just, let's just drive forward and, and, and get this thing going. Uh, particularly if we've got another round of pandemic hitting us, we, we got to help customers as we go. I think some brokers are probably wondering what's going to change after the IPO. Like you, you've sort of set things up as, to what it will look like, at least we think so, yeah. afterwards. But then what happens? Do, do you start to follow the patterns of other big Canadian IPOs insofar as those behaviors? Well, I mean, you Are look, you gonna look any different? Yeah, I mean, you look, at, you look at the other big examples, it's the life codes, right? They were all mutual before yeah. they mutualized and became large, powerful players that had a global impact. And we, we you know, Intact's doing a great job on that. We, we want to be another one like that. We want to have that opportunity. Our intent is to get big and to, to be very focused on the Canadian marketplace. We have built a, a, a leadership team and a pattern of behavior as if we were already public and much larger. And so what you see from us now is what you will get from us post IPO. What IPO does for us, it gives us access to, to debt instruments. It gives us access to capital. It gives us access to acquiring other organizations to help us grow that, that we're a little hampered with now. That's the main difference uh, once we get to that size. We're hoping that, that brokers can continue to be partners and shareholders uh, you know, in, in our new entity as we go forward. But our, our intent is to grow. We've hit the accelerator and we want to keep growing. We want to double and triple the size of the company. That is our path. That's what we're all laser focused on. And we're going to do that with the help of our brokers. That's, you know, and you've seen that you've helped us through the transformation. You knew it was tough sledding. We've got that behind us. Now we've got CI uh, profitable. We've got PI profitable and uh, let's go. Let's, let's partner and make this thing happen. So let me uh, wind us down here a little bit, Paul. So I'm going to give you uh, one last question here and that's the, uh, what we usually end up with with our with our guests here what uh what one problem would you fix with a magic wand um god there's so many where we, where, where would you start climate change uh How about the, covid the electoral college i would change the electoral college in the u.s uh, that would be <laughs> distracted driving uh <laughs> Maybe maybe COVID weight gain when we're all sitting in our offices not moving. <laughs> there, there's so much, but you know what? To be honest, uh, if we if we bring it really back down to um to the insurance space, I, I would love for us to be, as I said at the outset, far more um, collaborative as an industry. Uh, I don't think, I, I think we can be cooperative as opposed to competitive, you know, so the banks and the life insurance companies lead the way. If the banks who are even more regulated than us can work together for the betterment of the, of the customer, why can't, why can't the insurance industry, why yeah. can't we work on payment stuff, payment schemes? Like why does billing have to be different for everyone? It's just nonsense. So if I could wave my, my wand, I would, I would make us move much faster in that regard. I think when Paul was younger and he got a birthday wish, he wished for more wishes. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so, um, so we got to plug our sponsors here. So I want to say thank you very much to, uh, to Crew and to Gore. And um, also a shout out to our partner, Wick. And uh, so let's say, uh, Paul, thank you very much for coming on the show. Much appreciated. Cheers. Uh, cheers. Great job, Paul. Cheers. Paul, we'll get you to uh, give you the last thoughts here. So give you 30 to 60 seconds to close us out. Anything you want to say, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, guys, thanks very much. I really appreciate you taking the time to invite me on. Thanks for, uh, for, uh, for the beer. It's uh, much appreciated. It's nice to have a chat. This is one of the things that we need to do more and more. And this is the way that the industry, um, you know, got so good and, and the pandemic has made it difficult. But I appreciate you guys using this opportunity, even by video, to stay connected. So good on you. Um, I'm excited about the future for the insurance industry. We are uh, one of those good, stable, necessary industries. And look at even in the pandemic, look how we've managed to support customers and, and be a good, viable um, you know, industry for employees. And so I'm very proud of that we managed to, to be there when they needed us most. I think the future is bright and digital and, and technologically driven. And so the more we can work together to figure out how to accelerate our collective capabilities and compete with other industries in other countries, uh, the better it will be for all of us. And, uh, and so I'm eager you know, to continue the journey with you guys, particularly as we individually go through our unique um, IPO situation and beyond. I think um, we've heard you loud and clear. You, you like us being a Canadian-owned company. You like us being a good, steady, long-term partner. That's what we want too. So I'm delighted to be, uh, to be part of it. And we're having fun. This is as, as tough as it is. I recognize this is a very difficult environment. I don't want to minimize that at all. Uh, when I say I'm having fun, but I'm having fun in that it's it's a real challenge and we're solving problems and uh, that's a good good place to be. So thanks again, guys. That's great. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Paul. Appreciate your time. Right, guys. You thank guys you, Paul. Hello, loyal listeners. Hey, are you a local agent struggling to find markets for your client? Maybe you, maybe not. Look no further than Nation Brokerage Solutions. With over 200 carriers, their comprehensive options give you what you need for your customers' ever-changing needs. With NBS, as they say it in the cool world, you can confidently offer a wide range of options to better support your customers and grow your business, A.K. agency. Don't settle for less. Do more with NBS. For more information about Nationwide Brokerage Solutions, visit nbsbrokerage.com. Cast Certified.